0: You're listening to Who Raised You Podcast, a kitchen table conversation between Karen Lian Yang and Treasure Shields Redmond.
1: Unfurled and unafraid, we're centering voices of color from flyover country, and we start every podcast with a poem.
2: Come catch these waves that sound like thunder, look like butter. And feel like wonder. Now this ain't Wonder Woman. More like a natural woman. Draped in nothing more than what I came into this world with. How can we be so offended by the very thing we all have? The very vessel that carries us through this life. This chocolate coated earth reflected skin is not sin. Nor is that pale sun sensitive one that covers a body more thin. They are simply the outer flesh of where we began but certainly don't end. And for that reason I have loved it since my foundation and shall until my end. So come catch these waves that sound like thunder and look like butter. Painted by the creator. Streaks of lightning come creasing from places that have stretched. Now in my skin they are etched like a God-given tattoo. I look at them in the morning and say, I'm proud of you. They didn't give when things got too heavy or too tough. They just gave a little bit more and then my body adjusted. I wouldn't be mad at a reflection of my own resilience. That's like being mad at my own brilliance that has shape-shifted the same way, creating new responses to situations every day. So you see, it would be criminal to not acknowledge the labor that has gone unseen. That is why I will always call this body, this woman, a queen. Because like the women who have come before me have seen, it is not class that determines if we have descended from royalty. It is the fact that our Creator put within us that which many do not see, a burden, a passion, a gift to be free.
1: A black poet from Mississippi and a Taiwanese American minister from Silicon Valley had a podcast. We're about to find out. We might even blow up Shuate.
0: You're listening to Who Raised You? A kitchen table conversation between Karen, Jalian Yang, that's me, and Treasure Shields Redmond. As we explore how culture, family, and intersecting identities pave our way toward liberation, we want to know who raised you? We're curious and we're sometimes pretty irritated. Sit down, we have lots to talk about.
1: Today we're joined by Bertini Gray, who is a Chicago native. And for the last five years has been a lead organizer with um, the uh, Metropolitan Congregations United. She's a poet, organizer, activist, and healer in training who holds a master's in theological studies from Eden Theological Seminary in Webster Groves, Missouri. This year, she decided to move forward into a solo practice where she consults with organizations with whom she feels her mission is aligned with the hopes of expanding her work in healing Black communities. Brittini, the first famous question always is, who raised you? Yeah, so,
2: um, I mean, if we're literally saying who, um, that would be my... Mom and my dad as well as my grandma and my uncle. Um, Those are the people who I grew up in the household with. Um, I think more broadly speaking, um, you know, Chicago raised me. Mm. Um, I would say I had a lot of elders in my life um, who, you know, were there in a lot of different ways and probably not until recent adulthood have i been like reflecting on just all the people that have come into my life i've also had a lot of kind of adoptive mothers who Hmm. have taken me under their wings um and not as like disrespect to my mother but like just in addition you know um i've had a lot of women um just love on me and help
1: rear me into the person that i am Mm, definitely that's yeah. that's important mm-hmm. it takes a village to mm-hmm. raise an activist mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. it really does and yes. it,
0: it reminds me of our conversation with Tara because she said that she was raised by a lot of powerful women as well and mm-hmm. particularly she talked about her aunt mm-hmm. and it was like kind of like she was never alone right. in, in knowing that and mm-hmm. yeah for people to pave the way for you mm-hmm. that's big mm-hmm. yeah.
1: yeah well you know what this episode um is thematically tied around the issues of church and state. Uh, And let's expand that, not just the physical building where people may have a faith congregation and the state, as we know, as government offices, but also the divisions we keep within ourselves, Uh, the secular and the spiritual, the religious and work. Um, So we'll we'll start off. How did you... um, wind up in St. Louis?
2: Yeah, so um, I came to St. Louis five years ago specifically to work with MCU uh, Metropolitan Congregations United. I had done a year of service in Buffalo, New York with um, Catholic Charity Service Corps and my placement was at Voice Buffalo which is um, a sister organization, part of the Gomelio Network. Okay, I didn't know anything about organizing, uh, professionally, even though I would say, you know, Chicago has a very strong activist base. Mm. And so, you know, in a lot of ways I was involved in activism and around organizing. I just didn't know it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so when I like officially found organizing, I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. And I didn't want to stay in Buffalo, New York because, one, it's colder than Chicago. (laughs) But also um, just wanting to be closer to family. And uh, a lot of my roots are in Chicago. Grew up on the west side. My mom's side is from the west side. My dad's side is from the south side. Um, roots in Mississippi and Alabama, mm-hmm. and so I wanted it to be somewhere more centrally located mm-hmm. um and honestly, what finalized coming to St Louis was the staff um mm-hmm. they were all ordained ministers, and I knew that I wanted to be somewhere where I could continue to grow my spirituality and um All of those reasons just made St. Louis the right move. And what year was that? 2012.
1: 2012. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting.
2: Ironically, I had come to St. Louis in 2008 for a conference called Urbana. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, Christian... Campus organization.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty big conference, isn't it?
2: It's huge. Yeah, um, they do it every three years, somewhere between ten to fifteen thousand. Were you an undergraduate then? I was an undergrad. Okay. And um, the conference was in the um, what's that place called? The conference center, the one downtown mm-hmm. where the Rams used to play. Mm-hmm. And it was the. Um, I was in a session and I heard something that I have since attributed as the voice of God at that time, telling me that um, I was being prepared for this place, that I was going to do great things. Now, at the time, time. I had just started training uh, for ministry at my local church and so i took that meaning like that was my call to be in that church mm. and to do ministry it wasn't until about a year of being in st louis i actually moved to seventh and Cole, which is directly across the street from the center um i was there for a whole year before i remembered mm. that experience oh, and so God. you know now looking back i think um That it was a call specifically to St. Louis, not necessarily Mm. to just ministry, Mm -hmm. but actually here to St. Louis.
1: Interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow, that is, that's fascinating.
0: Yeah.
1: So, Karen, what year did you come to St. Louis?
0: 2012. Mm -hmm. We start, we, we, we came here to St. Louis at the same time, and I started seminary, uh, I think in 2013 then, and so that's when I met Mm -hmm. Bertini. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was in some of my earliest classes, and uh, I remember that you always were really dedicated to just speaking the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, You and your mother both, um, because your mom lived right across um, from me, and we were taking classes at the same time. Um, Yeah, I think what's funny is, though, um, what you've talked about in terms of calling and Mm -hmm. I think I also came here with the idea that calling is about like career or Mm -hmm. your job or your role and Mm -hmm. not necessarily about people or communities. Mm -hmm. And now I have such a different sense of calling and the way I talk about it, especially to my spiritual director or even think about it myself, is that I want to learn to love a community or commit to a community that I can love or, mm-hmm. or peoples that I can love. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And earlier we were just talking about, you know, what should be the theme of um, this, this episode. And we were thinking maybe we'll talk about shift, right? Mm-hmm. Shifting from kind of traditional expected structured roles, very nine to five, um, maybe mm-hmm. within a certain organization where everything's laid out to you. Um, versus taking a more creative plat- path. But I almost feel like, um, based on what you just talked about, um, maybe twists and turns is kind of more <laughs> accurate, right? Because you, you come in expecting one thing, um, maybe you feel something that's kind of like a conviction, you might name it God, you might name it Holy Spirit, you might name it like uh, the universe, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whatever it is. Um, and then it can turn out to be something totally different. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, you know,
1: I came here in 2009. Uh, When my marriage ended, I decided to move up here near my father's side of the family, which is in East St. Louis, Illinois, across the river. And I took a job at a community college there, Southwestern Illinois College, where I was an assistant professor of English. And I was kind of continuing the call that I had answered many years before that to you know work as an educator in mostly poor mostly black communities so I and I've continued to serve um black educational communities but you know what I find interesting about what Bertini said was her spirituality has always been bound up in her quote-unquote work mission Mm-hmm. So she didn't just pick a, a radical organization of communists, which usually kind of eschews uh, religion, right? Yeah. Like if we if we were, lo- I mean, you know, love, labor movements, I'm all about it. Um, but spirituality isn't a centerpiece in that sort of organizing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know, why has it always been important to you? And is it still important to you? To um, have an acknowledgement of your spiritual core mm-hmm. with your activism. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So um, I always said if I would have entered organizing outside of faith-based organizing, I would not be an organizer mm. uh, because I just generally don't like politics, oh, which wow. I know sounds crazy. Oh. Uh, Our minds are organizer. being blown. Um. <laughs> And, you know, whether it's union, labor organizing, or um, just other secular spaces, they tend to feel much more political and um, mundane to me. Mm. And so um, definitely being in a space where faith, spirituality is interconnected with the work, quote-unquote the work, mm. um, is important to me. I think that given just the shifts that i have making um, in and out of the church, changing fields now, um, I have been able to expand that beyond just traditional language of faith and religion and um, into spirituality, which you know, it's taken a lot of different forms for me now because that doesn't always look like people who are, who are uh, traditionally religious. Um, you know, I think spirituality for me is about kind of what Karen was saying, how we connect with people, how mm-hmm. we show up in community, um, how we interact with all of creation. Um, and so for me, that's always going to be central. To who I am as a person. It may look different in yeah. terms of whether or not I'm in the church or not. Mm-hmm. But uh, a spiritual core is, is the essence of who I am. Mm-hmm. And I think of who we are as people. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I recently went and saw Karen Yang deliver a sermon. Uh, what was the name of the church, Karen?
0: Uh, Christ Church United Church of Christ in Maplewood. Okay, at Christ Church where she uh,
1: put together this brilliant exegesis (laughs) of of the the famous story that many of us who were raised in Christianity know of, where um, Jesus uh, got into a boat, and it was prior uh, to some other kind of signature events leading up to his crucifixion. Um, And then I went to see Brittini deliver a sermon. And where was that delivered? Uh, Grace United Methodist Church. At Grace United Methodist. And lovingly, Brittini quoted from Karen's Mm -hmm. sermon. Mm -hmm. And what was so interesting and interconnected about both of the messages you delivered was that you tied spirituality or Christ's story to the work of liberation. Mm -hmm. So this liberatory Christianity that we read about those of us who are not in the world of the church. Mm-hmm. We read about it every now and then. And the claim is made that black Christianity is naturally, naturally, if that's a word we can use, liberatory. Mm-mm. But I want to know <laughs> in some <laughs> that's ways, <a> whole discussion. <laughs> hello, but I want to know how do you, uh, did you all move to, uh, tying the Christ story to liberatory work? And, and and at what points do you recall realizing, oh, this is tied to anti-racist, anti-homophobic work? So,
2: um, I grew up in an interfaith household. My mom is Christian. My dad is Muslim. Mm. And um, I would go to both the church and the mosque. I got baptized at nine. And uh, people always ask me, well, how did you choose Christianity? And I say, well, Jesus felt more real to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Outside of my bedroom door growing up was a black Jesus. Um, It was the passion of the Christ as told through a black um, artist lens. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think about my base within Christianity but also having kind of my economic and social analysis shaped more through the mosque Mm -hmm. Um, and both of those together along with the consciousness of my household have always presented Mm -hmm. a liberatory view of the gospel for me Mm -hmm. and so part of my exodus short term exodus from the church was about um having an understanding of the of the gospel, of who the character of Jesus was mm-hmm. not match up with what I was seeing mm-hmm. as an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that disconnect is what actually drove me out. Also, um, having very strong anti-racist lens and trajectory, but still holding a lot of bigotry and um, just I'll call it hatred for those things outside of racism and so um you know raised to believe that homosexuality was a sin and um part of what i think eden helped me do and um, and i had other people particularly a professor uh dr jaggy an undergrad Expand my understanding of oppression in the way that it shows up. Mm. And so I also had to use that time to separate myself from the church uh, because I needed to be able to shed those oppressions that I held. Mm. Um, and so only recently have I been able to say yes, actually, I'm both anti-racist and anti-homophobic and anti- you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and so that expansion felt like it didn't belong in the church Mm. um and it took me some time of contemplation to understand um one what my faith looked like in the context of the church and how my spirituality was still bigger than the church Mm. and so you know I think growing up, a lot of people called me a free spirit. Mm. And I didn't really know exactly what that mean until I was able to break free to fully be me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I returned to the church because I still see value in it. I still see it as a place, particularly where black people are gathered with intention. Mm-hmm. Um, and And still, I have a lot of issues with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So,
0: i think for me it the the question really is about where do you see sacredness and where does that mm-hmm. come from mm-hmm. because when i was growing up i grew up in the church of the nazarene mm-hmm. and so it's a holiness tradition and what that means is they take very seriously exactly what the scripture is right. saying and so they look within the scripture for what's sacred and then kind of turn that outwards to how you apply it in the world. Um, So I feel very fortunate that I grew up in Silicon Valley within that tradition because um, I didn't get a lot of the like fundamentalism, a lot of the kind of more hateful end of conservatism Mm -hmm. that I I hear and observe in Mm -hmm. that denomination right now. Um, I got a lot of geeks who were raising me, to be honest. My senior pastor for the longest time was a vice president of a, like, semiconductor systems um, <laughs> company, and so he he would say his sermons and there'd be, like, a PowerPoint slide with Venn diagrams all over it. Yeah. <laughs> Those were the type of people who were teaching me about the Bible, um, and... Then, coming here to St. Louis, um, because just of how race works in St. Louis, Mm -hmm. I learned a lot more about how it works in U.S. America. And then I was doing practicum and field work, both in social work and at Eden Seminary. And what I was feeling, I think, is pretty similar to what Bertini was talking about, which is what's more real. Mm -hmm. Um, So... On the one hand I read the Bible a lot when I was growing up to the point that I was realizing that pretty consistently whenever God gets mad at people it's because they're not taking care of those who are oppressed. Mm -hmm. Widows, Mm -hmm. orphans, etc. And I was thinking to myself if I were to apply that to modern day it would be people who are LGBT, it's people who um, are poorer, etc. And so the focus on people who are marginalized in social work was why I wanted to pursue that Mm -hmm, field mm -hmm. and then I came here and really met people and um, got involved in communities got involved in activism and organizing here um, was really formed in social work and ministerial training in the Ferguson uprising and I was realizing that what felt more real and where I was finding the sacredness and those kind of God moments were when I was working with people, when we were on the streets, and everyone was chanting in unison, and it felt really like this is what it feels like to be a part of something bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, When I've um, been a part of bailing people out from jail, right, Mm -hmm. the, you know, the movements that have um, kind of spread across the nation around that and prison abolition um, that is really what it feels like to set prisoners free, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. literally what it is. Mm-hmm. Huh? Come on, preacher! So instead, instead of, like, <laughs> I, I, I think that the Jesus of my childhood, a lot of it was this, like, space astronaut Jesus, where he's, like, Superman in the sky, like, kind of miracle worker. And now I see Jesus more in the people around me mm. that are doing these sacrificial things, mm. that are thinking about other people before themselves.
1: Mm. Well, you mentioned something really important, which was the Ferguson Uprising. Yeah. But you wanted to say something, Retina. I you. did. I wanted to respond to what Karen said. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: so that was not my Jesus, but kind of was. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jesus was both and for mm-hmm. me growing up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much um, kind of beyond our conceptions Uh you know, a healer. Mm-hmm. Um, a but, in also, the but also <laughs> a very real and relatable human being, right? Uh, I remember my grandma um, had a moment of temporary blindness. And um, like any good black church folks do, called on the women to pray. Um, and they prayed over her, laid hands on her, and her sight came back you know so it's moments like that that are very concretely in my mind um, about the spiritual nature of who Christ was and um, I just don't get it how people can read particularly the gospels Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and think of Jesus as anything other than a revolutionary Yeah, and that was clear to me at six years old. Mm-hmm. You know? Um and so there's this there's this contradiction of black church um mm-hmm. that you mentioned um, earlier, mm-hmm. Treasure, mm-hmm. saying that uh it is inherently liberatory. Mm-hmm. Right? So when mm-hmm. we think about the, the, the birth of the black church in America and in, in US particularly uh, coming out of uh, the Insidious institution of slavery. Mm-hmm. Come on, bring it Um on. There was this very, um, um, I would say, embedded uh, arch towards freedom and justice mm-hmm. um, and a very fundamentalist reading of the word, right? And so what we have now is the black church split between these two ideologies that it was essentially born with and i think the um what has what has sustained me um even in the movement was knowing that there was this revolutionary aspect of it mm-hmm. even though majority of 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 churches that i have been in do not preach that way mm-hmm. um that it's still there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: so well you know uh you know, as a native Mississippian. <laughs> I was raised in charismatic church. Um, it was a personal Jesus. That was one of my favorite gospel songs, my mm. personal Jesus. Yeah, that. true. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, there was this idea that every story in the Bible was about black people, not just mm-hmm. the Hebrew mm-hmm. children leaving, mm-hmm. but every story was about black people. Right. Um, I mean, the
2: Exodus is our story. Exactly. I don't. I don't know people who own the Exodus story more than Black people. Yeah. Do.
1: Yeah. And <laughs> even though our Jewish brothers and sisters would disagree, I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but what I'm saying but, is, but yes,
0: even but Black Jewish brothers. Right. 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 Right.
1: <laughs> but um, so this idea, I, uh, what what I have found it hard to reconcile. Um, with church is the revolutionary Jesus and the need of people to find equality with, um, biased systems. So for black people to aspire to a discrete heterosexual unit that has a mother and a father, 2.5 children, a dog and a picket fence was also aspiring to heterosexism. Mm -hmm. But the Bible was used to, you know, kind of justify that template of family. Mm -hmm. And all of that bleeds out into um, ideas about gender, ideas about worthiness, ideas about uh, earning salvation. Um, And all of those kind of, to me, hit ground zero when Michael Brown was murdered. And I want to move us forward. You guys entered St. Louis in 2012. I entered here in 2009. And when Michael Brown was murdered, one of my first experiences was going to, Tracy Blackman's church, Mm -hmm. where an emergency meeting was held. Mm -hmm. I remember Mm -hmm. that. And Mm -hmm. I saw the um, divisions Mm -hmm. between black clergy. Mm -hmm. I saw younger black clergy admonishing older black clergy to not wear suits at actions. Because these were black men who had entered in the tradition during King and Jesse Jackson's time. When you had two choices, you could be a laborer or you could run things and be a preacher. So, um, so so they were um ready for their king moment and the and the moment had passed them. The Ooh. moment was now for young people, for millennial people, for all of those people who wouldn't have been comfortable in their pews. So moving back to our two clergy at the table. When the murder of Michael Not Brown occurred, oh, 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 okay, okay, to our two seminarians <laughs> at the table. Very well. Uh, when the murder of Michael Brown occurred, how was your call or your faith challenged or strengthened? Mm-hmm. So here's the thing: uh, the moment
2: of movement is always for young people. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, God. They was young when <laughs> when, when King started mm-hmm. uh, and grew old, and so you know there's this balance of movements between the wisdom of elders and the uh, energy of young folks. So I just I wanna I wanna make that clear, and you know uh, from the beginning of the institution of the Black Church clergy have always been in the position of authority, right? It's not like it was something that became new mm-hmm. because of the civil rights movement. Like That w- really was one of the only places mm-hmm. where black people could assert themselves mm-hmm. and have their own autonomy. And so, you know, that is a, a tradition that is very steeped in patriarchy, right? A system that... Um, Christianity entrenched in the founding of this country, right? Mm-hmm. So, part of it is they are not to blame because they are simply living out a system that they have been indoctrinated into.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And <laughs> mugs should just get their lives
1: together.
2: <laughs> because black women have always been the vanguard of the community. So, Mm. um, I say that to say... (laughs) She's flipping her hair back. Right.
0: Like, when you're talking truth, it gets a little warm.
2: (laughs) I say that to say, um, the first half of the movement, if we're saying the past three years since the murder of Mike Brown, the first half of the movement actually deepened my faith. Um, I poured myself deeper into study, deeper mm-hmm. into the, the proclamation of the gospel um, as my way to respond and um, was being transformed by every moment that I experienced mm-hmm. until uh, the point where actually I began to see all the contradictions that were there. Now, for me, what actually solidified leaving the church was my visit to Ghana. Mm. And um, I went to Elmina Castle. Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and, tell, and what is Elmina Castle? Um, so it is, was
2: a slave dungeon on um, the coast of Ghana. Uh, that was established by um, the Portuguese Mm -hmm. and then the English, Mm -hmm. I think. All of whom were quite Um, church-going. And what did it (laughs) was that the church was located on top of the female slave dungeons. And I think that was the epitome of what the system of Christianity has um, represented in terms of systemic oppression and white supremacy for my people. And that white folks worship on top of the agony of black folks. And I was so disgusted that I did not understand how we had come to a place where that was the religion that we had accepted. Um, And I was both heartbroken and disgusted with that thought. Um, I mean, we knew that the Bible was used to keep the enslaved in place. And, you know, we've known so many different things about how Christianity has shown up. But something about that physical representation of the church on top of the dungeons... That um, black women were packed into with no place to relieve themselves, with no space to eat, with um, gunpowder and the heat from the kitchen stove consuming that area. How dare you worship on that? And for me, that is what the movement was about, also. It was about white supremacy worshiping in light of a black body being slain viciously.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. And um, I just couldn't do it. Much like Karen, I saw sacredness in the faces and in the spaces where people were convening um, for the movement. And I did not see that same sacredness in a church anymore. Um, and my decision to go back to the church now has been one of both strategy um, and discomfort because I am still wrestling with that reality and um, I think that that was a gift from the movement Mm -hmm. to be able to
1: wrestle with that yeah Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. yes it's it's such a powerful um connection that you're drawing and you know the fact that um you know ministers would come out and bless slave boats mm-hmm. um and I'm trying as people can't see it but I'm looking up the poet who how dare I not remember her name but Lucille Clifton mm-hmm. um who has a poem called blessing the boats mm-hmm um, which is a little bit more than a coded reference to that mm-hmm. um, Karen Yang <sighs> emboldened, weakened strengthened by the Ferguson uprising your faith, which of it or was it a combination
0: you know I'm still sitting with what Bertini shared hmm um, I remember when our classmates went to Ghana, and I remember people coming back and sharing what they had to say, and I also remember hearing, like, secondhand how important that trip was to you, and I think a lot of what I was um, hearing was that you were still working through it, and I imagine you still are. hmm I tell you what, I ain't want to see a white face for a long
2: time after that. <laughs> I really do not. Mm-hmm. Most days mm-hmm. still don't want to see white mm-hmm. faces. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And you know, coming to a radical consciousness as a black person, um, that can be a stage. Some people remain there, but that can be a stage where you don't even want to eat white bread.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, I ain't, I
1: ain't never <laughs> ate white bread. Actually.
0: <laughs> There are you no like, nutrients. One no
2: white bread in my house, baby. Okay, I told you Jesus was black. We
0: we've had conversations about fried rice and whether it should be pale or not. That's fried a whole other conversation. Fried rice, yeah. the darker
2: the berry, the sweeter the juice. And the same goes for fried rice too. <laughs> yes. Yes. I actually, I don't, unlike most St. Louis's, I don't like their Chinese food. No. One of my requests is uh, extra, extra dark rice, please. Because in <laughs> Chicago,
1: it is the color of my skin. Oh, okay. Is <laughs> so it darker than here? Yes. Yeah. Oh well, you need to come to East St. Louis yes, thing. That's a but, side conversation. Yeah, kind of. They call it the rice house there. Mm-hmm. Here, it's a little slurry. Yeah, it is. I can make up a word slurry. They I call it the Chinaman.
0: Okay, <laughs> yeah. I, I heard that. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> At first but when St. I heard St. it, Louis? I was like, "What is this?" <laughs> and then I was like, "Okay, it's a St. Louis thing." I'm gonna, I'm gonna like lean right. back. You're gonna have your moment. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have your best. Right. Like it's okay. Right. Right. Crab rangoon. Right. I, ne- I never knew
1: what that was until I came here. I didn't and then, know what that was. I didn't know no St. Paul was.
0: I still, I still have a the Saint Paul. And ain't. Okay,
1: I've got to. I've I got I, this. May get cut out, but I've got to explain to the listeners that the Saint Paul is basically we don't cut this a out. Egg, it's an egg sandwich, and it's egg <laughs> foo young with the gravy on white bread. <laughs> on white bread. See, I
0: understand the egg part. What the what the foo young? <laughs> <laughs> See,
1: like, I, I still what the foo young? Yeah, the yeah, right. Like I'll need, I'll need to, I'll need I'll to try it to know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, in East St. Louis, they call it the Rice House. Mm-hmm. And that's some, that's some African-American rice like mm-hmm. there. But um, cool. it's, it's black as <laughs> Wesley Snipes. <as> um, <laughs> well, um, Karen Yang didn't answer the question. So. No,
0: I didn't. But <laughs> I do really resonate with what you said, Bettini, mm. about strategy and discomfort mm. and the wrestling. Because... I feel like there's this narrative of faith where wrestling is a bad thing. But at the same time, we have all these, like, stories. I'm right? going yeah. to wrestle with him till he
1: bless me. Right. I, I exactly. say that about every difficult thing that I encounter. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm going to mm-hmm. wrestle with mm-hmm. it until it blesses
0: me. Yeah. You can apply it to people. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you can apply it to so many things. Yeah. Um,
2: I mean, the, you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's true for you, too. But yeah. especially in the black church, it was always this. Oh, oh, you don't you don't question God. Mm-hmm. True. Um, and why not? If I got questions, I got questions. Right. Who better to answer them than than who we proclaim is the most divine? Right. If they can't
0: answer the question, who can? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, can, can is God big enough to right. take it? And right. I think my faith. What's What's nice about it is that in in my experience doubt has a way of expanding things it has Mm -hmm. a way of like breaking things open so Mm -hmm. the light can shine through Mm -hmm. and i feel like doubt has made it so that i think of god or the sacred or everything that i have faith in that i'm i see is broken and shattered from experiencing reality that that is big enough to take Mm -hmm. all my anger all Mm -hmm. my questions um all the tears, Mm -hmm. all the doubt. Um, And I I feel really similarly about strategy and discomfort with the church because um, I think something that I've learned around spirituality and faith is how to understand community, how to understand family. And I think one of the most revolutionary things we can do is dig deep in our relationships with people that we are connected with Mm -hmm. and I think over and over again about how since I was raised in the church I can speak church language Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they understand it back and Mm -hmm. so even if we're not on the same page about our perspectives at least we can be on somewhat um, similar ground when it comes to values Mm -hmm. somewhat similar ground um, when it comes to the stories we tell about what we hope Mm -hmm. we can see Um, and then for me I, I feel that my narrative around faith and whether it was strengthened or not in the Ferguson Uprising, it was kind of similar. I think there is something that was somewhat magical and terrible about the first few days and weeks and months of the Ferguson Uprising mm-hmm. because there was just so much energy and passion there and people were out and there was so much happening. Mm-hmm it was, like, impossible not to get swept up Mm -hmm. into it unless you were just closing yourself Mm -hmm. off and hiding in your homes or hiding in your offices. And um, I remember being at Dean Krause's house at 3 a.m. trying to write some sort of Moral Monday litany. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time, I I didn't understand what the arguments were going to be and, like, the disrespect that was going to come out of the All Lives Matter phrase. And so I remember putting in the litany "Black Lives Matter" and then "All Lives Matter" after that, thinking that what that meant was, Mm -hmm. if Black Lives Matter, then All Lives Matter.
2: Yeah, I almost never talked to you again after (laughs) that. I remember that moment starkly.
0: Yeah, that's continue. (laughs) And there was there was a lot of patience, like what you, you mentioned that people had with me. And part of the reason why I can be at this table, um, having these conversations. Um, and that to me was where I saw sacredness. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time that those moments of learning where people were willing to have those hard conversations with me, like, no you can't just say love as an example and like as a way to deflect from the pain that people are feeling Mm. um that people were willing to hold me in that um that forced me to look at everything differently Mm. so i remember going to an episcopal church for the longest time and realizing that when i looked around me that i was the only person of color there who was an adult that everyone in that church was white And then there were some kids of color. And I also remember when they were giving out the Eucharist and they were saying, you know, are you a gluten person to me who had attended there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I'm like, do you just not know me? Mm -hmm. And then I realized that whenever people interacted with me, it was really to praise me for being involved. Mm -hmm. It was to praise me for doing something. And I realized what a token I was. Mm -hmm. And then... When I got a job in another church, I left. Mm. And then when I got laid off from that job, I left. So um, I think now it's, it's my hard work to figure out where sacredness is outside and within. Um, but the strategy is also thinking that when I do have opportunities to speak with church people, even though I'm not obligated to do that, it is a chance to do that work
1: mm-hmm. mm. well I have to tell you that for me um, my um, permanent leaving of the church I will not be returning even though I'm keeping the gospel music they can't have that mm. That's mm-hmm. mine. Um, sorry can I interject <laughs> and say that
2: actually before I left the church I had stopped listening to gospel music uh, I do not listen to gospel music for about three years, mm. so it's so funny that you're the opposite.
1: Interesting. Well, I Go can't. Ahead, I have to say I can't listen to people like Ty Trivet mm-hmm. because they say things like "Come out of homosexuality," come mm-hmm. out. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. <laughs> it stopped somewhere right after Mississippi Mass <laughs> so and below. So, <laughs> um, um, but it started. It, it kind of took place in stages, and it actually started when I was about fourteen. We would have this spontaneous testimony service Mm -hmm. that Baptist churches have. Mm -hmm. It was called devotion, Mm -hmm. and it started before the sermon. And people would get up and say what God had done for them for the week. So people would say magical things. Mm -hmm. They would say, I looked in my coin purse. I didn't have money for my light bill. I prayed. I looked in there again, and all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. I had the $12.13 I was supposed Mm -hmm. to have. That didn't bother me. Mm -hmm. That was normal. Mm -hmm. These miracles, minor miracles, Mm -hmm. were normal. But there was one moment when a woman stood up. I remember she had, it was a youngish woman. She had a baby on her hip. And she just uh, she just wanted to say, sometimes people would just say, thank you, God. Mm-hmm. Thank you, mm-hmm. Lord. He's a healer. And she stood up with her baby on her hip and she said, I just want to say, I can't wait to get to heaven so I can praise him all day long. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, that sounds so Boring. Mm-hmm. Is that what we're doing? Is that what we're in church waiting? on I used to feel like that too. <laughs> like, mm-hmm.
2: like, is that what we're preparing? A whole lot of stuff I want to do. Not that to kiss some
1: guy's ass for an
0: eternity. <laughs> it's probably a real big one too. Oh, right. <laughs> God and is that, as big as they yes. say. Yes. and that
1: simmered that simmered for years mm-hmm. until. Um, I then became, you know, solidified in this consciousness, this anti-racist, anti-patriarchal, anti-capitalist con- consciousness. And while in St. Louis, I moved to progressively more progressive church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just I couldn't take it one place, so I would move mm-hmm. here and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. And I wound up at a church in Webster Groves which is now called Peace United Church of Christ, right down the street. Mm -hmm. And the pastor at the time was a committed lesbian in a relationship with her wife. Mm -hmm. And they said all the right things. They had done what UCC church does. They had changed the the gospel songs so that they weren't colonizing instruments. Mm -hmm. Um, And I became representative there. There was only one other black family. And I began to worry for my children. Mm-hmm. What that would mean to position them as representative.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I made one last ditch attempt at black church, and it was the I couldn't deal with the contradictions mm-hmm. and the homophobia. Mm-hmm. And then I finally realized that I'm old enough and grown enough mm-hmm. to continue this walk mm-hmm. without feeling bad every Sunday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So that's what happened with me. Yeah. Um, Can, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to say something? Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, Would you like some more? So yes, <laughs> yes, yes. We're doing wine, just so everyone yeah. knows. I, who raised the glass? We, did. we, we did. <laughs> uh, it's funny that you say
2: when you got to St. Louis, you found, you found yourself in more progressive spaces. Mm-hmm. What well, positioned yourself in more progressive mm-hmm. spaces? I have always found myself in a space before I was ready for it, oh. um, mm. and so. I have often grown into and then beyond kind of the theological um, spaces I have been in Mm. and that is part of why I have not like gotten rid of spirituality altogether because I believe that the Mm. spirit has known even when I did not Mm
0: -hmm. what I needed yeah yeah
1: Interesting, interesting. So, this idea of being led by spirit, though, I guess I would have to say along with gospel music that I've kept that as well. hmm hmm hmm
0: Is there a story that comes to mind when you think about ha- having what you needed before you knew you needed it?
2: I mean, everything. I yeah. came to, uh, in this... This is a very St. Louis context. So if there are people listening out in St. Louis, then sorry. <laughs> we we um, say this is St.
0: Louis centered, so it's all good.
2: Mm-hmm. I joined St. John's UCC mm-hmm. three or four months after being in St. Louis. When theologically, I should have been at Central Baptist. Oh, okay. okay. Do you, you understand what I mean? Yeah, you should have been in a nice
1: suit with some with some uh, yeah. fur cuffs and a hat. Yeah.
2: like I, <laughs> my theology at that time was more aligned with Central, okay, than it was with St. John's.
1: Okay,
2: but I still chose St. John's,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and over the years it became apparent why, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would, I would say that. I mean, I would also say like. Even your perspective of me in seminary that first year,
0: sure.
2: um, you know, I think folks have often observed me as one way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's crazy because, <laughs> I mean, I have done a 183 times over since the yeah. movement <laughs> began in terms of my own radicalism. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to me, I'm a completely different person. Mm-hmm. Than I was August eighth, twenty fourteen, yeah. um, and yet to, to to hear people affirm that there was this truth telling, no nonsense, keep all of your isms, fuck white supremacy to me. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. then, you know, yeah. uh, I think it's just kind of testament to mm-hmm. to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, going back to this Moral Monday. Piece that Karen did.
1: I remember. <laughs> I didn't know about this Karen. I oh yeah, I,
0: I have it written in a book. If you need it, but I remember. <laughs> don't need a reaction The first time
1: she did the refrain, can we? Can I just need to stop you for just a second mm-hmm. because you guys do a lot of in in group talk. Okay. That people wouldn't understand. So why was Karen? reciting a liturgy that she wrote and where was she doing it okay i'll give you that in just a second. yes
2: because otherwise <laughs> okay. I what i'm saying okay uh i remember the first time i heard the refrain i said who vetted this shit like that's really what i thought no to one. myself like like um how dare they ask mm-hmm. this but I'm, I'm just i'm just be real honest yep. how dare they ask this asian girl to come up. to mm-hmm. this motherfucking Moral Monday shit about black folks and <laughs> read this goddamn litany mm-hmm. and then got the audacity to put all last matter here this why we can't do cross interracial work cuz motherfuckers yep. don't understand the struggle that black people go through mm-hmm. so let me I just want to mm-hmm. put that out there cuz mm-hmm. like that was all you of can. what I was feeling yeah. and um you know part of part of my journey has been like growing patient because I didn't have any patience then. Mm-hmm. I have a whole lot now. I'm amazed at how much patience <laughs> I have. Um so
0: And that's not even a lot an of people, obligation. Yeah, right. yeah. Right. So that's generosity.
2: You know, I I came out of an organizing tradition where the organizer was in the background, kinda like a puppeteer. Puppet master. Whichever one it is. Mm-hmm. I get confused. The puppets and the yeah, puppeteer. Yeah. So, um, kind of controlling everything that's going on, but not being seen. Mm. Uh, And so uh, a lot of people don't know that I actually was, you know, active in the movement from very very early on, even when I wasn't visible. And so I had been in the background um, planning a a lot of different of the programming aspects for Ferguson October. Mm -hmm. And so Moral Monday was actually like the conclusion of that weekend Mm -hmm. um, where clergy decided that they would um, um, gather and march down to the Ferguson Police Department for a a prophetic proclamation and um, um, calling to confession and repentance for the policemen who were there. Mm -hmm. A lot of of politics going on with that, Mm -hmm. a lot of reactions to that. Um, And so part of the programming piece of it was to have a moment in which um, after clergy had confronted and spoken with um, police, there would be this kind of blessing of the space and calling forward um, kind of like, you know, I don't know. Just talk about what your liturgy was Yeah,
0: yeah. So um, we... We had a litany, which is basically kind of a public ritual of saying things that bring meaning to what we're doing. Right, right. Um, And we did a call and response. And so what I'm talking about, about going to Dean Krauss's house at 3 a.m. was I think I did get the call from Dean Krauss. Mm-hmm. And it was actually to me and then my colleague, who is a white woman. So even more layers upon that, right, and, and reflection that there are times when you say yes to things and there's times you say no to things. Right. Mm. Um, so there's a lot, you know, as Bertini says, she did a lot of one eighties. Um, I hope that I did as well. Um, there's a lot that I have spoken to other people about that I regret. And yet I remember also Mm -hmm. that one response is that you did what you did at that time. All you can do is kind of move forward. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, and and I think the other thing that I've learned um, in, in addition to um, that moment itself is how it connected to the broader movements mm-hmm. as well, right? Reverend William Barber was doing this in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. It's a strategy of uh, reframing what we're doing as not again, like like Bertini said, there's a distinction between pure politics where you're just talking about the issues, the policies and... Um, versus when you really bring in values into it, when you say this is an issue of morality. Mm -hmm. And that's something that speaks to shifts in culture. We talk about right, de jure jure segregation and how even if you change the policies that might not change the hearts and minds, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's also to call into account um, elected leaders and police officers and then also to say that we are working under an authority that's bigger than you all. Right. That even though you have all the resources, that you have all the position, we're not answering to you. We're mm-hmm. not going to take it anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. And I think it's also
1: a move uh, to stop the institutions from just having conversations with themselves. Mm-hmm. Because as an academic, That is what has been frustrating to me about important educational institutions in the area. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to have a panel full of their own people kind Mm -hmm. of talking to each other. Mm -hmm. No one speaks to the community. And, you know, the church, it could be said that they do, you know, they do similar. They have their own conferences. They have their own panels. They're talking to each other. So Reverend Barber's move to bring clergy out to speak to power is, you know, of course, in the tradition of lots of, of clergy, notably Dr. King, who asked his um, denomination if they would join him, and they said no, which is why he had to form the SCLC. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this idea of clergy, spiritual people, people con- closely connected with church, being shocked and saddened at the fact that when they started singing, come on and go with me, they were like, no, we'll sit right here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You run on and see what the end gonna be. So, um, um, I guess I would, I would have to kind of wrap up our conversation and bring it to a close. It's been so resonant and so important to have this conversation with young people like yourselves who are doing the quote unquote work. So I guess the last question I'll ask is, is it a work or a calling?
2: Um, what are you distinguishing between the two?
1: How would you define each? So if it's a work, it's something that you do Systematically, regardless of if you feel a spiritual tug around it or not, you do it because you think it is morally right or mm-hmm. ethically right. Mm-hmm. If it is a calling, then the spiritual tugging is bound up in it, mm-hmm. and you always test what you're doing mm-hmm. via that lens. Mm-hmm. So, is it a work yeah. or a calling?
2: So it's definitely a calling. Mm. Um, And I'm going to use this as an example to highlight why I feel that way. So when I started organizing, um, I saw it as um, the professional manifestation of what it meant to do justice. And part of why I am no longer with the organization I was with is because I finally realized that the place that supposedly said it was committed to justice was actually keeping me bound. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so to be able to walk away from that was an honor of being called, not just to doing the work. Okay. You understand what I'm saying? um and so for me uh, uh, the calling is the only thing i move by mm-hmm. right for for me it is about how do i understand the reason that i am on this earth not how can i make money not mm-hmm. will people approve of this or not mm-hmm. simply am i doing what i was put here to do And that is always going to look different. And it is not always going to appease everyone who is around. And I have to be committed to that and
1: nothing else. Fantastic.
0: Good last words. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you,
1: you, Brittini Gray. It has been an honor to talk with you today. For sure.
0: Yeah. And we hope you enjoy the poem that she shares with us. I know she's been working on something. (laughs) Always brewing something, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Amen. Where can people find your work? I know that you're working on an exciting project right now. You want to shout it out or anything else that you're working on? What exciting project is this? Activisionology. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I have so many projects Okay. right, right yeah.
2: now. <laughs> um, so I'm working on a website. Uh, haven't settled on the name yet. Okay. So just be on the lookout for it. But I am excited to be working on... Um, Writing poetry for a book entitled Activist Theology. Oh, yeah. It is in <laughs> collaboration with the wonderful Dr. Robin um, Espinoza, um, wonderful queer, non binary, um, Latino, Latinx um, theologian. Mm-hmm. And it's really about everything we've talked about. Um, theology beyond the walls of the church, um, which I tend to write a lot about mm-hmm. in my poetry. Mm-hmm. So it's gonna <laughs> be awesome. Um we start doing some preliminary book tours uh this fall and um it'll be out next year in twenty eighteen. So awesome. stay on the look for it.
0: So it's people already. keep updated. I know you had a Kickstarter. And yes. How was that?
2: successful, fully Woo-hoo. funded, mm-hmm. overfunded mm-hmm. actually. Good. I donated. Uh, about 105% <laughs> funded, so mm-hmm. thank everyone who donated to that. Um, yeah, it's going to be dope. There's a uh, few other projects in the work. Um uh, doing a poetry series right now, connecting um, my own experiences to the voices of the enslaved um, and their mm-hmm. narratives mm-hmm. called Oaks and Magnolias. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's going to be coming soon and um newest fellow over at emerging wisdom Mm. i am both artist and resident there and healing justice fellow so some great stuff coming out in terms of um black healers um forming a collective to be more responsive to the trauma that Mm -hmm. has been endured by organizers and activists and just communities of color
0: wonderful how are you feeling about all of it
2: I'm excited. Yeah? Yeah, I feel so free. Good. Even though, like, I have just as much on my plate as I did before. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just, Mm -hmm. this is a great time. It's beautiful. And I'm excited to know (laughs) so many beautiful women of color like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. y'all to be collaborating on this stuff with. So. We're happy for you. Yeah,
0: thank (laughs) y'all. That's an understatement, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Appreciate it. All right, signing off. Who Raised You podcast is co-hosted by Treasure Shields Redmond and Karen Jalian Yang. Consulting by Farfetched Collective. Contact wearefarfetched at gmail.com to learn more about how they can help you launch or expand your project, business, or nonprofit with their agency framework. Thanks to Bertini for being a guest on today's show. You can support her by checking out Activist Theology on Kickstarter a book project combining the poetry of Black liberationist organizer Rebell and Critical Liberation Theology by Robin Henderson-Espinoza, being published by Augsburg Fortress Press.
1: Baby, I just need you to know Your essence is beautiful